Well, uh, I'll say, I'll say this. You are not the oldest guest we've had on the podcast. Yeah, you're very sweet. I just turned 50 in like a few weeks back. Yeah, and then not, not even, you're not even in like the top two or three. <laughs> <of this guest>. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to ADSP, the podcast, episode 74, recorded on April 14th, 2022. My name is Connor, and today with my co-host Bryce, we interview Patrice Roy about C++ education, cats, and more. You know, it's interesting. I, 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 um, I was thinking about this a bit the other day that um, I was thinking about the nature of programming books. Um, that I think, and maybe this is untrue, but I'll, I'll, I'll put out my theory here, which is um, I know a lot of people who write programming books. I have a shelf full of books that are written by my friends. Um, but my impression is that most of them are written with the audience of post-education um, people, people that have graduated from college that are practicing you know, software engineers or programmers and who want to continue learning their skills um, uh, and that they're not written as textbooks. And I guess my impression is that like in other fields, um, that tends to be less the case. It tends to be more that books get written as, you know, explicitly as textbooks or as course books. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe my perception is, is, is off here. I certainly know that some of the C++ books that I'm familiar with are used as course textbooks. Um, maybe not at like the, you know, the introductory level, um, but, but at, at the higher levels. Um, but it, I think it is sort of like an interesting phenomenon. Um, it reminds me of, a, of another thing, which is when I was a kid, I would go to conferences all the time with my mother because um, she's a lawyer and lawyers um, have to do a certain amount of continuing education um, every year to, to keep up with their certifications, their, you know, their uh, bar association memberships in the U.S., um, and, you know, one of the ways that you can qualify to do that for that continuing education is to go to a conference and, you know, attend some classes there, which is a lot more fun than just like taking some training courses. So, of course, that's what we would do. Um, but there's no real certification or requirement for that in, you know, the programming industry. So it's sort of um, up to our own, to each of us to feel motivated to continue learning. <laughs> Yeah, but if you don't, you're going to get stuck way, way back and you're going to stop following what's going on in the world. Uh, the um, I, I don't use books uh, written. I have probably the same books you have. Uh, I don't use most of them in my classes. I do suggest chapters from time to time to students. I, I write my own material. If you look for introductory books, there's one uh, from Yarn that's kind of cool. The, the one the, the one with the, the, the birds on it. Yeah, a tour of C++. No, the, 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 this is this is cool if you already know how to program. But the programming principles book with the swans on it, it's, it's written for undergrads, so it's kind of accessible. And what I like about it is that it goes into detail as to why you do that, how you can do things with the language, what what the purpose is, what the uh, there are pictures of people like Stepanov in there, like these are the artisans, the, the people that have worked on this. It, the, yeah. the language lives through them, so there, there's. I think for beginners, it's an interesting book. It's a bit big, maybe for a class, but uh, I, but I don't use it. So the one the one that Patrice there's a, there's a few different books by Bjarna. Um, uh, two of the more mainstream popular ones are uh, the Swan 
book one, which is uh, Programming Principles and Practices Using C++ by Bjarna. The other one, which um, is one that I, is perhaps the most frequently cited introductory C++ book that I know of is the, the C++ Programming Language book, which is um, has a similar cover in that both covers are blue, but the C++ Programming Language book has mountains on it. Um, I don't remember. I don't know if there's a fifth edition of it now. The fourth edition was, I think, the C++11. No, he doesn't want to write one because the language has changed too much. And yeah. I don't think it's a good introductory book if you've never programmed before, though. It's, it's a good book to get C++ if you learn something else in the past. Yeah, interesting. I've, I've, I, I know some people, professors that have used it for an for intro programming course that was taught in C++. And th there's some other books that Bjorn have written, written like uh, the design and evolution of uh, C++, which, uh, that, which... That's an awesome book. Though. Yeah. That's really, really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I've, I've recently was diving in it to find quotes for, for something. It is a pretty solid, pretty solid book. It gives you perspective as to why things are the way they are, uh, why, why the model is what it is, and how it differs from other languages. So even if you don't like C++, you should read that book to at least get why the language is what it is, because mm. there's purpose to that, there's meaning to that. It's, yeah. uh, the, I passed it along to my colleagues, and everybody loved it. Even those who don't do C++, they love the book. So you said you, you develop your own course material. Um, is, that, is that pretty common in, in the... CS world? Well, uh, I don't know about the CS world entirely. Uh, in wh where I work, uh, many of us do that. So uh, it's, yeah, yeah, I'm a bit of a maniac for that. So I write <laughs> stuff all the time. Now, now, of course, I'm going to put you on the spot. Is it open source? Uh, well, uh, if you can read French, a lot of it is on my website. I have a very big website with awful colors, I know, but that's some purpose. <laughs> it's it's an ugly looking site with lots of contents that uh, people who speak French look at quite a bit. Um, uh, I used to have um, a password on the, the site, but it was a hassle because uh, people couldn't reach it through Google. So I removed that. The course material uh, that's in book format is accessible, but universities, they want to control access a bit, so they're on Moodle sites, so it's not as open source as it could be. Uh, if I do a big update of everything at some point, now I don't have the time these days, I might like just publish the stuff uh, in article form on my site to make it available to more people. Mm -hmm. So right now there's an overlap between the book kind of stuff that I write, that's for the students, and the article stuff that I write that's on my site. And some, in some cases, the site is more up to date. In some cases, the books are more up to date. But the overall stuff is pretty good, I think. It, it just it seems to me like, you know, we, we in the... Um in the software world, world, you know, we, we know how to do, you know, open collaboration between, you know, different, you know, spanning organizations and, and national boundaries and, you know, uh, and everything. Um, it seems like, you know, what, why, why isn't, why doesn't like every programming language or every field in CS have like some, you know, open source collaborative effort to develop, uh, uh, you know, educational material for the university level? That, that's a very good question. I don't know. There are open classes. Uh, they, maybe it's just because schools make money out of that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it can be that simple. No, why do we sell the standard on ISO? It's because yeah, there's some slight amount of money to be made out of it, I guess. Um, the, uh, I, want, I want people in my classrooms. 
No, I want I want to be with people and talk to them. So I don't want to record my classes and let people watch them uh, from home using popcorn and, and, and beer. I prefer them to be having popcorn beer with me or something. So so if, if I publish everything online, uh, I'm going to be alone in the classroom. It's going to be boring. Um, I, I have that. Yeah. Do you uh, so do you teach all your classes in French? No, 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 no. I do. I do give all the, the CP North class will be in English, of course. Uh, the, those I also I'm at the university work. classes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did. Sometimes I give uh, when we have um, students from outside of Canada uh, quite a bit. Sometimes I do give bits in English. I answer English questions in English to help people along. But people who come to study with our class uh, in our classroom, they, they do have to learn French or speak French. Mm-hmm. There's a video game uh, graduate class that we begin, we've been offering for 17 years now. Uh, it's a full-time uh, graduate degree for people who want to come in and uh, re- participate in game development. Uh, in this class, there's a lot of French from France students, but there's also Spanish people. There's people from the uh, Eastern, uh, from Eastern Europe, from South America, from the English-speaking world too. And uh, but the classes are in French, so I accommodate them as much as I can when they're stuck. But otherwise, well, they're learning and they're doing well. Anyway, they want to work in Montreal, so learning French is a plus. Yeah, yeah it's important. Yeah. So, are there any are there any challenges to teaching um, uh, something like C in French? C you know, the the, the language. You know, and the constructs of the language are obviously sort of uh, very English-centric in nature. Are there any, you know, challenges that come out of that? You, you, you want the funny ones? Yes, like, definitely. So something like length, the T and the H, they're so hard to write for French-speaking people. They keep mixing them up. <laughs> but, but no, no, it's not that difficult, really. It's the, the, uh, most, uh, most people here in Montreal, they speak, they speak both languages. So, yeah. so they, they, they kind of have the basics of English, at least. Uh, coming from France, those who come from France, they do have some basics in English, too, so they kind of get along. Uh, if you ask them to write a paper for you, it might be unpleasant to read because the syntax would be all wrong, but you know, it's not, nothing that difficult. The, the, the most difficult thing is getting people to structure their thought, and that's regardless of language. So uh, writing smaller functions, more focused classes, uh, stop using pointers all over the place when you don't need them, things like that. And that has nothing to do with English or French. Interesting. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about, you know, people pr- programming um, uh, in languages other than English because... I'm not really aware of any programming languages where the constructs are not, um, uh, or, or the keywords are not sort of very English centric. Um, there are for a some. Long, there, there are, are some. Yeah, some people that have equivalent in French. It's very, very strange when you look at it. Though I've seen that there's APL. It was more math oriented. <laughs> And there's weird things, yeah. (laughs) There's weird things like white space where, you know, everything that you write, that's not a white space is a common. Yeah. But are there any languages where the keywords are um, not English keywords? As I said, I know know in dev that does that. I I sometimes have uh, people having internships in places where they use that, but it's kind of, Mm. I'd say. It's understandable if you think of it because you want to reach the wider audience and it's the lingua yeah. from these days. So if you C Sharp, the guy who wrote that is Danish, but it's an English language. And Bjarne is uh, from the Scandinavian countries too, but it's, you know, your audience is English. Yeah. And for, for a long time in a language like C++, um, you couldn't have 
non-ASCII identifiers or even, you know, there were, there were some compilers that would reject comments if they were not ASCII. And if I may, I have so much respect for the SG16 people who are working on Unicode for C++. My hat tip to them, they are heroes. Yeah, when, when is C++ going to get Unicode? I need to be able to write my APL compiler in C++. And I tell you, I tell you, trying to, trying to like iterate over a string that does not contain UTF-8 or the, or the 256, it is... Uh, you, should, you should try Zach Lane's um, text library which I think is part of Boost now. Okay, I'll look yeah. into it. Yeah. So, so Patrice, Connor, do you, do you know of any languages that have non-English uh, keywords? We, I think we asked this question earlier on another podcast, yeah. and we had a response from someone on Twitter that said, oh, there is, there is actually a language, yeah. and they linked me to it, but I do not have it top of mind. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a language out there that doesn't have non-English keywords, but uh, it has a very interesting character set um, and it's called Jelly. I'll just leave that for the listener to go explore. Just Google Jelly programming language. I, I've, I've had to use tricks in jobs I've done in the past. So in the recent past, that brought me to pre-C++ 98. <laughs> and, and you know the toolbox? When you have a full toolbox, it's very, very useful in those moments. Yeah, I can't yeah. imagine. I can't imagine. Uh, you know, C plus plus eleven. That's what I started with because I started working in C plus It were not not in C plus plus. I started working in the year twenty fourteen, and we were using C plus plus eleven at that point. I don't even think the full feature because we had some Visual Studio two thousand something that only had like half of the features. Still, they had the auto keyword and lambdas and stuff like that. And um, yeah, I can't imagine having to go back and every time you want a callable, you have to build a function object in the form of a struct with an, like, just there's so many things that like I took for granted when I started with the language and you'd hear about people being like, oh, you know, you don't know what it was like. And I'd be like, I don't know, it seems like a pretty nice language to me. Um, but then you realize that there were the, I don't want to call them the dark ages, but just like the the pre C++ 11 ages. And so when you mentioned pre C++ 98, that's, uh, I, I can't even, yeah, I can't even imagine. It was a lot of fun because it was an avionics place where they had to certify the binaries that they were generating. So they had to compile stuff in debug mode to make sure it was the readable binaries. <clears throat> then they certified them and cost so much that they didn't want to change the compilers in any way to make sure that the binaries were as stable as they could. So it worked. We were using compilers I had not used in my 23 years of teaching. It's older stuff than that. So I had to really pick in my old toolbox. If you took a problem like doing function composition, f of g of x, and you try to solve the problem with C++ 98, 11, 14, 17, 20, the, the evolution of the way you solve that problem is amazing. It's gotten so simple and so clean and so efficient. It used to be doable, but in such convoluted ways. Mm. Yeah, there's a number of, of, of things we have learned over time, and the language is really helping us. So, yeah, we're going to solve problems in many different manners in that class, and I think it's going to be awesome. So, yeah. Patri- Patrice, you haven't always been a professor, right? You, what? What? Did, I think I thought you worked on some pretty cool stuff for your professor, didn't you? Do uh, uh, like flight simulators or something? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I did. I did research for Hydro Quebec, which is the biggest uh, company in Quebec here. It's a state-owned thing where we produce electricity, and since we have a lot of water in Quebec, well, we have a lot of electricity. And we, after that, I did a few years of uh, military flight simulator work. 
Indeed. So what do you want to know? So about was, that, was that all, was that all in C++? Was that in like C++ okay. in the early C++ days? Okay. So now, now, now you want the stories. Uh, <laughs> when I got there, uh, the reason I got into flight simulators at first was that I had gotten a scholarship for graduate studies and I had a baby and another baby was coming along that was not expected. And I looked at my scholarship and said, oh, we're going to have a problem. Money is not going to be sufficient. <laughs> So I applied there because a friend told me, yeah, we're looking for people. <clears throat> I went there and they asked me, do you want to do military work? And I said, no, I don't. And they still hired me and they offered me a job doing military flight simulators. And I thought about saying no. And then I looked at the money and said, well, I have no choice. But I really, really enjoyed it. I learned a lot of stuff. It was very instructive. <clears throat> it was a milestone in my, uh, my, my, my personal development. It was a very good learning experience. Now, when I got there, my boss was a Fortran 77 expert. And he was, uh, you might not be aware of that, but for Trend 77, you don't have local variables. Everything is static. So if you were trying to write recursive functions, you're going to have a lot of pleasure. Um, he was scared of using the stack for functions because there seemed to be in his mind a cost to the stack pointer being incremented and incremented in code. So they're, they're just selling the fact that we had local variables was, was a fight. <laughs> So it was a mix of Fortran 77 and NCC that we had to do. Now, I, I was a C++ aficionado back then already. <clears throat> With the C++ I knew, which was much more limited than what I know today. So I had built a, a framework of macros to make my C code behave kind of like C++ with initialization and stuff. Uh, which generated a lot of code because it was, um, I tried to be as clean as I could. And I actually saw an error message when I was there that claimed that the function had gotten too big through macros and the compiler refused to optimize it. I'd never seen that before. There are too many lines and I refuse to optimize your code to go to hell. Kind of sounded like that. So yeah, so I did that. I worked on uh, mostly helicopters, uh, that went to war, but also uh, did search and rescue. I worked on uh, communication channels and I worked on a system that simulated uh, voice messages within the uh, simulated um, helicopters. Voice is interesting because it's a real-time system. It's hard real-time. Uh, the people in the uh, helicopter, they have to be able to um, tune in to a radio and listen to, believe it or not, the weather. That's very important for them because they don't see what they're doing. And they're guided mostly because, because there's always like fog and stuff. And they want to go to such and such airport and they want to know what the weather is to actually do their approach properly and that don't kill themselves or anything. And the uh, executive system that we had there, so it was a layered thing with... Uh, see it as a four-level tree. The topmost part was a critical band where <clears throat> things have to be done at every iteration of the system, and that's life-saving stuff. And as you go along down the, the tree, uh, things get more less and less critical, so they might skip turns from time to time. And I happened with that system to have, to have pieces on each and every level of the system, so I get the whole experience. Yeah. And, and it was the biggest flight simulator in the world back then, so uh, by far. So, so uh, it was seen as a research project, but our motto was at CAE, we can. So we said yes to everything, regardless of whether it made sense or not. 
and, and, and I was given 50 hours to take this bit of Fortran code that worked on a single helicopter and make it work on a system of helicopters that behaved as a unit when sharing a world through many machines. Uh, pure parallel code. It was uh, and uh, concurrency and shared memory and stuff, which of course made no sense. It took three hours to do. So it was uh, the three hours, three years, three years to do instead of 50 hours. It was crazy. Um, and if you want the inside story, when I saw this, I said, I'm never going to write that in Fortran 77. Makes no sense to me. It's way too hard. So I, I asked for budget to rewrite it in C because C++ was out of the question. It was too scary. And they said, no, we don't have the money. So I went on my own at night and I wrote the whole thing in C on my own time. And I committed it and told nobody for a few weeks. And when everybody saw that it worked, then, then I told them and everyone was relieved because nobody wanted to do that in Fortran anyway. But yeah, so that. <laughs> what, what year was this? When was this? Uh, I, I was there between 1995 and 1998. Wow, those were really the, the early days of C++ and you were already wow. using, using it, already familiar with it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I started using C++ around 1993 or something. Uh, wow. yeah. mm-hmm. Uh, I'm old. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll say. I'll say this. You are not the oldest guest we've had on the podcast. Yeah, you're very sweet. I just turned fifty like a few weeks back. Yeah, and then not not even you're not even in like the top two or three. <laughs> <oldest guests. laughs> you're very sweet. No, I don't. To, to be honest, I would have stayed at CE if I had not gotten a teaching opportunity. But I wasn't to do teaching in long term. And when I got an offer, I said, "Well, if I don't do it right now, I might never do it. So let's just do the move." It cost me a lot of money to do that, though, <laughs> because I was well paid at CE. Yeah. Yeah. So how, so how many kids do you have now, Patricia? You, you, you mentioned two. <laughs> no. <laughs> I could hear some kittens in the background. I was really hoping we'd get to see one. Um, no, they're, they're sleeping right now. Most of them, well, I just fed them like 15 minutes ago. So they're the most, oh. most of well, who's got the kids? Someone, someone had some cats or something that was going, meow. And I, uh, I'll keep that in. I'll keep that in. Everyone's going to get to hear Connor as a cat. Um, <laughs> I do know you have a lot of pets though, Patrice. And, there, and there are seven cats at home. There's one dog, three parrots, a hamster. The number of cats has gone up to as high as 30 from... What? Um, yeah, yeah, but we have a shelter. My uh, house. Okay, I was about to say, like, you basically have a farm or, or a shelter. Yeah. Well, I, I have a wife who works at the veterinarian's clinic. Uh-huh. She's an expert in um, uh, cat and dog nutrition. So, uh-huh. she, Interesting. Uh, so she works from home mostly and she uh, guides people who have problems. It's a free service. So people just call the, the dial in or the, the schedule a meeting with her and they have an hour and she listens to what the what kind of problem they have and they, she guides them through uh, their uh, nutritionary needs. And we have seven cats of our own. They're all kind of weird, like with weird paws <laughs> or weird defects. One of them is missing a tail, whatever. And we take, um, in Quebec, most people move around July. There's a tradition where first, first of July, everyone's moving and people tend to abandon their cats along uh, around mm-hmm. that time, which is very sad. <clears throat> when, uh, we were living, uh, our previous house was about 15 minutes drive from where I live now. And my wife was, uh, in the, was, uh, in the Conseil d'administration. She was managing kind of a, a shelter organization where they rescued cats, sterilized them, vaccinated them, and let, get, let them go. When they got pregnant, 
cats, it was more complicated because you don't want to sterilize them with the babies. Mm. So we used to take the cats then, uh, the, uh, let them have the babies and then sterilize everyone and vaccinate everyone and find homes for them. So we kept on doing that when we moved. So that's why sometimes we have as high as 30 cats because there was one time two years ago, three years ago, when we had four pregnant uh, cat ladies uh, in the span of a month and all of them gave birth to four to six kittens. So they each had their own room, such that they didn't fight. And there were seven little boxes, seven little boxes to be twice a day. Yeah. So, so if I understand correctly, then it is likely that you will that right before C plus plus North, you will have additional cats that will that will end up in the house because everybody's moving in July. It's probable. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that tends to happen. It's happened less with COVID because people moved less. But yes, we do that. And and then then why do we do that? Because we can. I mean, my, my wife is good at this. We can uh, when they need special um, medication or treatment, we can actually do that. We can prepare milk and feed them when the ladies cannot do that with small biberon. Uh, I don't know what the English word for that is. But you know, when you feed babies with bottles, yeah. So yes. so we, we can do that with cats. They're very tiny bottles. And, and, and when, when the lady cats cannot do it, because already they kind of lick the babies to make them uh, pee and stuff, well, you need to do it yourself. So you need to put the baby cats on top of the, uh, um, the sink or the toilet and you need to massage them properly so that the pee and stuff. To, and then you wash your hands, of course. So I do that quite a lot. <laughs> How how have we? I'm, uh, do you put pictures of these cats in your in your talks? You have to start if you don't. I, I, I've done that once or twice with a few cats, but my my, my wife has a Facebook account. She, she she's more of a picture person than I am. But I, I've done that. I, I'm not a big picture person, but I have done talks with pictures of cats. But I, I feel I, I, it feels weird to me to to advertise that during my talks. But I do talk about them. And you talked about the kids. I have five. There are only two left at home because the others are, are all gone. One of them is going to be a kind of lawyer soon. One of them is a dance instructor. One of them is a uh, literature major. And I have a teenager and a young uh, kid who's still in elementary school. And you teach at two different schools. And wow. I have a PhD, which I did along the way. And I Great. used to be a union worker, too, because I, <laughs> I used to be part of the teacher's union. Well, uh, one of the executive members. And I what's do the, work. Yeah. What's the secret, Patrice? To... Uh, ask Bryce. He never sleeps. I, mean, I do sleep from time to time. Bryce doesn't sleep. So. <laughs> uh, no, I had to take that out of my profile signature because now I, now I sleep. <laughs> my, <laughs> my, my, my email signature for many years said sleep is for the week. But now, I, uh, now, now, now that I'm an old man, I, uh, I go, <laughs> go to sleep. <laughs> What do I do? When I feel tired, I go to sleep. I can tell you that. And uh, since since I, I've seen Michael Wong's resume, I don't feel like I work a lot anymore because my Michael is is ridiculously busy. It makes no sense. I don't know why he does it. But I, yeah, I get up early. I go to bed late, and I try to do a proper job. You know, so that's what I do. You know what's what's the most difficult these days? It's uh, there, there's been a, a lowering in literacy skills. So people learning to make meaning out of the text that they read. So in university, in college these days, what I noticed for the last two or three years, uh, you have to repeat more what you say because people, they can read out loud the words, but the phrases don't make the same sense to them as it, the, it used to. So the thing I say the most these days is please reread the directives to make sure you've got them right. Please mark down what you've done because you probably didn't get it properly. 
And sometimes they give me homework back and I have to give back saying, that's not why I asked, please do it again. Mm. And when, when at some point I sit down with them and I've done that many times in the last few weeks, I read out loud with them the words and said, I never saw that paragraph. It's the first one in the actual text. But they, they just came over. You don't see it. So my fight these days is to make sure that you read because there's been a lowering during COVID times of reading skills. Yeah, I was just about to ask. You said, you said the last one to two years. Do you think that that's related to the move to online? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's an impact because it didn't used to be. So there's always problem with people having problems with their reading skills, but generalized like that, it's like, I saw almost half of the students these days. Interesting. I used to have to, uh, at the top of my exams, I would write RTQ, which stood for read the question. Mm-hmm. And this is not necessarily because I have a low proficiency in, in, in reading. Like I read quite a bit, but especially with math exams, I get very, very excited because I know I like, I see the structure of the problem in a few numbers and I just assume, Oh, I know, I know what to do here. And then I'll end up, you know, there's times where I failed tests because I didn't actually read what it was asking me to do. And I just sort of very yeah. quickly got excited, went ahead and answered. And then I got back and it would say, you know, 40%. And I'd be like, what, what happened? I like, I nailed that. And then I would go back and <laughs> the commentary from the prof or the teacher would be like, this is not what, uh, you know, was requested, you know, please read more carefully. And uh, yeah, that's, that's so sometimes, always sometimes there's this interesting phenomenon that sometimes people that have a high um, reading proficiency um, and who can read very quickly um, uh, uh, will have trouble like recognizing uh, an error in a text because they read through it so quickly that they like, you know, they, they, they just complete their mind, their head just like corrects whatever the error was um, in, in the sentence. Um, sorry so about that. that. Yeah. If, if you'll allow me, we used, me, me and one of my close colleagues, we used to have this exam we passed to first year students, uh, like midway uh, through the semester, where there were um, objective questions. So you have a choice of answers. And in one of them, the answer was pseudocode. <clears throat> and, but we put pseudopod, P O D, instead of code, which is a, a um, tentacle. As first answer, and pseudocode was the fourth one. And the only ones that missed it were the good students because they read too quickly. So they saw the first mm-hmm. word, and I used to give them, I, I used to draw small uh, uh, squids and end them over in the class in public saying, You got a prize today because you read too quickly. So, yeah, you only hit the bad one, the, the good students with that. Yeah. It's funny, my dad would always joke to me, like when I was in high school, and if I did poorly on something, he'd ask me, and I'd say, ah, I didn't do that good. But I mean, that's just because I didn't read the question correctly or whatever. And, you know, so I, I knew what I was doing. I just didn't. And it went on into university. And like whenever I would talk to him on the phone, uh, he would just like, he just sort of chuckle because like, is his joke is like, oh, you didn't read the question. Oh, surprise, surprise. You know, that uh, you did. Oh, poor, the only reason you did poorly is not because you pre- didn't prepare. It's uh, it's because you don't have time to like do the most important thing, which is to figure out what what the test or the, the class is asking from you. Well, at the level where we are, it's reading your messages. professionals they don't read just well enough but they're often quite talkative you know so you when you read them properly you kind of grasp the gist of what's missing yeah you work your way through so making them learn to read their messages is a fight because after two years in school they still don't do it what's super super interesting about that is a lot of the times in a production code base you'll get some crazy template you know template metaprogramming you know 100 lines everyone's seen it and 
my gut reaction is like, ah, I don't know what this is doing. And then I'll go to Godbolt. I'll get some minimal, you know, reproducing version of it. And it'll be the same sort of error, but like now, because it's a minimal, you know, reproduce and like, I know exactly what's happening. I'll just read it. And it'll actually tell me like in the midst of all the garbage, like the exact problem, which the previous error actually also said, I just, I just like, I saw it and my eyes glazed over and I was like, oh, I'll go fix this in Godbolt. But like, it's like you said, a lot of the times the error messages, like in the midst of all the angle brackets, there is actually like very specifically what your issue is. If you had just taken the time to read it, which I rarely do, I just go to Godbolt. So there's something there that like, you know, we, we always complain about how awful they are, but like a lot of the times in the midst of that awfulness is actually like the key to the problem. Um, we just don't. Yeah. You're making a point for writing smaller functions and smaller meta functions. If you write small things, it's so much easier to find your way around. You almost don't debug if you don't do that. Yeah, yeah that's true. Well, one thing that I, I, I've run into that a lot too, Connor, and I do the same thing where if it's, if it's, looks like it's going to be hard. I'll just go to Godbolt to try to reproduce it there, especially a lot of the bugs. Cause I mostly work in compilers these days. A lot of the problems that I run into are um, bugs that are actually in the compiler. And so if it's a compiler, bug, if I think it's a compiler bug, my first reaction of, is to reduce it down to, um, you know, the form that a compiler writer wants it in, which is, you know, pure, like ideally pre-processed source code that's like minimized that has no includes or anything so that it's, you know, an easy test input to, to reproduce. Um, but one thing that I've uh, often done with uh, more complex template errors is I'll dump the, the error message to a text file, um, and then that lets me go and do some reformatting of it. Um, if it's an if it's an error message where it's it's complaining about like you know the second argument, the second template argument in like a template that has like four or five arguments, and like maybe one of them's like you know just a string of like nonsense. Um, you know, the, the default way that most compilers format that um, is just to give it to you all as one long line. And so oftentimes, if I take it into a text editor and I, if I just like start manipulating it, like put each argument on one line, then it becomes a lot easier for me to figure out, oh, this is actually what the problem was. Yeah, you're making a point for indentation of code too, is the same thing. Yeah, yeah, exa <laughs> exactly. On the other hand, some, some of the other compilers I work with, um, they try to do that sort of formatting for you um, uh, in their error messages. And it's like, it's, it's the, it's hard to identify what the optimal formatting of an error message is going to be for like in the generic case. And so I think oftentimes it's good for us as programmers to take the error diagnostic and then like, see if we can sort it into something that's a little bit more manageable ourselves. I think there's a, there's a tool that Vittorio Romeo has written, but I do not recall the name of, but it actually is like, you pipe your compilation uh, into this, and then you can set the level of like uh, nesting of the brackets that it shows. So by default, it like collapses all of it, and then you get like a much more succinct. And like the idea is, you can keep running it and increasing the level until the message that you or the info that you need is there, which is kind of a neat idea. Um, One interesting problem that we have in the C plus plus space is the question of. Um, uh, when you dump out an error um, that's got um, some sort of uh, stack to it, you know, like template instantiation uh, stack, um, uh, you know, which direction do you do you output? Most compilers um, uh, output um, uh, from like like the original source of the error all the way down to where it was triggered from, um, and I think that's actually not very helpful. 
um, because like you, you see it, the, the, then when you get this long error dump, the last thing is going to be the first thing that you see. The last part of the error message will be the first thing you see. And if you see instantiated from here within main, you know, the place where it was instantiated from is maybe not the most helpful thing. Oftentimes the most helpful thing is what the, the root of that, of that tree of this was the error that happened. Um, I think the only compiler I've seen that does it the inverse direction, if I recall correctly, is I think circle does it the other way around. Um, which I have found to be quite interesting. I'd love to see that be a switch for which direct, which, which, uh, you know, to reverse the template instantiate the, the error instantiation like message order. I'd love to see a switch for that so that I could, I, I would probably switch it by default. Cause like almost always what I do is I, is I scroll up to the start of the error and I read the error from the start down. Yeah. Do you need the Eclang format kind of tool for error messages? Maybe? Yeah, I, I was just thinking that. I was thinking I want Clang format for error messages. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. It would That's... be an actually nice project to write. Yeah, somebody, somebody get on that. Yeah, I'm sure there's something out there. Yeah. Um, if all not, right, so after I... this podcast, there will be. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed and have a great day.